All right, welcome to the Nino and Tierney podcast. I'm Paul Nino. And I'm Steve Tierney. And uh, this is a recording that we made on uh, December 16th, 2020. It's a recording of our year-end client call that we had. So... Yeah. So, this, so we, we, yeah, we talked, this was a follow-up from our original April 15th, 2020. That one was kind of an emergency uh, client call to kind of go over all of the different things that had been put in place as a response to COVID-19. Uh, and it was really what kind of started us realizing we had the ability to record uh Things, events like that, as well as just conversations between you and I and put them out there as, yeah. as, um, as podcasts. Well, we realized that there was just this huge need of people wanting to hear from us and stuff. <laughs> people, are, people are clamoring to hear from uh, two nerdy CPAs for an hour. That's for sure. Yeah. So we, I, oh. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. I was say, so it's obviously an opportunity to update people on uh, the CARES Act, things that maybe have forgotten or gone by the wayside, and then talk about some year-end tax strategies as well for yeah, people. Yeah, and so we recorded this client call that we had today on the 16th. Uh, we recorded the video as well. We'll put the video up on YouTube. We did have PowerPoint uh, slides that we went through, so in case you want to take notes and uh, uh, see the detail of it, um, you might want to watch the YouTube video. But we talked. We did a refresher on the CARES Act, which was significantly what we went through back in April. We talked about the current pending legislation for a second relief bill. And by the way, Steve, I don't know if you remember this, but in our last podcast, you and I made a wager about okay. about when it would be passed or not. Yeah, that's right. I Frankly, I've got to go back and listen to that to figure out what it is. But I think, I think if it passes this week, I think I win. I, yeah, I think I may be wrong. Let's go back and listen. And I think that I said Wednesday, and you probably said Friday or something. Ooh, well, if you were talking about this this Wednesday, then you're going to be right because I, I I think it's well. Anyway, who knows? We'll okay. see. Yep. We talked about uh, if there's another relief bill coming. It does sound like it's going to happen this week. Uh, we talked about some year-end tax planning strategies. Just kind of. Um, some basic basic ideas there and then we also went over uh the biden tax plan which we've already kind of talked about on this podcast but it was kind of good to go over that in a little bit more detail so i thought i think it was a good discussion good information hopefully you find this useful hopefully everybody's doing well and uh hope you enjoy this information take care bye-bye available for you to be able to log in uh, later on and be able to review it uh, if there's any items that you wanted to take a look at uh, at a later date. Also, if you have questions, you know, we're doing it a little bit different than maybe we did back in April. Uh, if you have questions, there should be a, a box uh, as a part of the Zoom where you can actually ask a, a question and uh, you know, if we can, we're going to try to get to as many of those as, poss as possible. Uh, if we don't get to your specific question, you know, please feel free to reach out to us uh, after uh, either via call or send us an email. We'd love to uh, get back to you on that particular uh, 
uh, item. So we're going to kind of, uh, participants are muted, right, Steve? And I think we're going to, yes. Steve and I have split up the things we want to go over, uh, and we will just kind of uh, have a little conversation on these things as we go through this. So what we want to, want to talk about today is just kind of an update on the CARES Act. This was uh, our the big thing that came about at the beginning of the year that kind of started us doing these calls. So we're going to do an update on that. We're going to talk about the status of another relief uh, bill coming through Congress. We're going to talk about some year-end tax planning strategies. And then uh, we just thought we'd give an overview of the Biden tax plan as well. That's uh, obviously in the news and something that's current and relevant. All right, so the first thing we want to talk about was a CARES update. So back in April, actually on April 15th, we uh, had our first client call. I don't know whose idea it was to do it on April 15th. Was that yours, Paul? I think it uh, might have been. We had nothing <laughs> else going on on April 15th. Um, and so we, we reviewed a lot of these CARES Act updates, but uh, like many of them, I think uh, it's always good to have a refresher on those and to remember uh, what it was that was passed. You know, I don't know if you remember, Paul, but the CARES Act, I actually looked it up. Uh, it stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. So there's your, your bit of trivia for the morning. Uh, lots of things that were, were floated through that bill, the first of which was uh, employer payroll tax deferrals. So employers were able to defer the Social Security portion of payroll taxes uh, for all of 2020. And then the repayment of that, 50% of it needs to be re repaid by December 31st, 2021. And then the other 50% by uh, 2022 on those payroll taxes. So it's a good reminder for employers. Uh, I, I'm sure if you're using a payroll service, they are going to automatically turn off deferring. But if for some reason you're doing your own payroll and you're in the, the habit of not paying in those employer payroll taxes, uh, you need to start paying those in at the beginning of next year. Yeah. Uh, enhanced unemployment benefits. You know, there was a $600 uh, unemployment benefit that was <clears throat> included uh, throughout the summer, that sunset in September. And then there was a $300 uh, unemployment benefit that was set to expire at December 31st. Student loans, uh, the payments on student loans and the accrual of interest, uh, that was put on pause for 2020, but that will commence uh, once again starting in 2021. There were a few uh, retirement plan distribution or retirement plan loan provisions, uh, the first of which was you could actually take out $100,000 out of your 401k plan uh, you avoid the penalties on that, the, you know, the pre-distribution uh, penalties if you didn't meet the requirements. And then you could actually uh, spread that income, you know, the $33,000, the recognition of that over the next three years. And you had to qualify for that. And many of these uh, qualification standards were pretty easy to overcome. Uh, so this was an opportunity uh, for people if they needed to, to withdraw some money out of their 401k plan. Also, if you had a, if you already had a 401k plan loan and that was due in 2020, 
that is delayed for another year. So uh, that plan came up in 2020. You could actually, uh, you know, contact the 401k administrator, and then you would have another year to be able to pay on that 401k loan. Uh, also, there's new loans. If you need to take out a new loan, you could take out up to $100,000, which I believe is up from $50,000 uh, in the past few years. There was a lot of different uh, other employee types of credits for employer, you know, trying to encourage employers to keep uh, employees on the books. Um, there was an employee redemption credit where up to 50% of their wages or $10,000 per employee, uh, you'd be allowed a credit um, on your 941 or your payroll tax return. Uh, in order to be eligible for that though, you had to have a 50% drop in revenue in a particular quarter over a 2019 quarter. So uh, it was kind of difficult. I didn't, haven't seen a lot of people take advantage of this so far. And one of the main reasons is because the wages that you pay, if you use PPP loan money for that, you weren't eligible to take that employee redemption credit at the same time. So it could be that maybe some wages in the fourth quarter of 2020 where you weren't using the PPP loan and you did experience a, a huge revenue drop and you kept those employees on, you might be able to recognize that credit uh, here in the fourth quarter. NOL carrybacks, uh, you know, as a part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they eliminated NOL carrybacks, but as part of the CARES Act, um, that was reinstated where you could actually, uh, if you had a net operating loss that you incurred in 2018 through 2020, you actually could carry that back for five years, opportunity to be able to get some tax money back uh, and put that in your pocket. Uh, and also on a carry forward, uh, there was no limitation. You know, there's an 80% limitation. You could use 80% um, up to 80% of your income could be offset by NOLs on the carry forward. That was eliminated. So now you can offset up to 100% of your net operating loss uh, going forward. And then there was a big um, technical correction. You know, we had been waiting for this. I think what the TICJA passed in 2016, I think, and, or maybe it was 2018. And there was this technical, correction where uh, property was eligible for 100% of bonus depreciation, but somehow Congress, they left out uh, property that had a depreciable life of 39 years. Um, as a part of the CARES Act, they corrected that um, and that depreciable life of the qualified improvement property was decreased from 39 to 15 years, therefore making it eligible for the 100% bonus depreciation. And that actually was retroactive back to 2018. So if you have a 2018 return, um, you may be able to amend that uh, and claim that 100% bonus on qualified improvement property. And we'll, we'll pick up on those things when we're preparing returns this year and, and talk with our clients and, and go over those things at that time. I think the payroll, the payroll related CARES Act items, um, Again, please reach out to us. We're happy to discuss that, but your payroll service is probably who you want to talk uh, through those things. Uh, but these things, the NOL, the, the, the 
bonus depreciation. We'll pick up on those things while we're preparing a return. Just kind of touch on uh, briefly as well, um, as we you know have these spikes in the coronavirus, that uh, there is up to 80 hours of paid sick leave for employees that um, you know are quarantining related to the coronavirus, either because they have COVID or they think they have COVID. Um, there's, you actually can claim a credit on your payroll tax return. Um, those wages are exempt from employer social security. Um, so you probably need to notify, yeah, your payroll company that you'd be eligible for the credit for the, the uh, wages paid for uh, employees that are out for COVID related reasons. Uh, and then also there's uh, 12 weeks of paid emergency family medical leave. So if, uh, if you have to stay home because you're caring for a son or daughter that's under 18, you, you receive uh, up to two thirds pay um, under the, the Paid Family Medical Leave Act. Stimulus check, this was a big thing that we talked about in April and uh, you know everybody that received, were concerned about how do they get their $1,200 check? Uh, actually, November 1st, November 21st, 2020 was the last day to register to receive uh, your stimulus check. And as you remember, there were in some income phase outs. And just as a reminder, if you didn't receive your stimulus check and you were eligible for it, you actually will receive that credit on your 2020 return. So don't feel like I, I totally missed out. You'll be able to take that credit on the 2020 return if you meet the income phase outs and you never received your check. It'd be interesting to see if the IRS issues some kind of a, a letter or notice to, to taxpayers uh, just confirming whether they received their stimulus check during the year or not to kind of make it easy for uh, tax preparers to decide on if they should be claiming that credit or not. Yeah, that would be extremely helpful for sure. If, and maybe we need to add that as an organizer tax question. Yeah, yeah. did you get your uh, stimulus check or not? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, RMDs were suspended for 2020. So if a taxpayer who turned 70 and a half in 2019 or in 2020, they were not required to make that first uh, required minimum distribution out of their retirement plan accounts. Uh, and then business interest, you know, that was a big change that we've kind of tried to get our arms around was that there was interest limitations on businesses uh, up to 30% of their uh, taxable income. That increased for to up to 50% for 2019 and 2020. Moving on to a PPP loan update. If you guys have followed our podcast, you'll know that this is basically a reoccurring theme throughout because it has changed so much. Um, is a PPP loan. We're always talking about the PPP loan uh, along with I think everybody else. But you know I. If you were to take one thing away from this um, Zoom webinar, I would say that this is a big surprise and this is going to surprise a lot of business owners, which is, you know, the expenses that are paid from that PPP loan are non-deductible if there is a reasonable expectation of forgiveness. The IRS has essentially doubled down on this. Um, they have uh, issued Rev Revenue Ruling 2020-17, I think it came out in uh, late October or November, basically saying, hey, if whatever money was spent um, using the PPP loan funds, 
you're not going to be able to take a tax deduction. And what that essentially amounts to is that uh, business owners are going to have an increase in their taxable income by the amount of the PPP loan funds. So I have a couple of examples here. Um, and, and those expenses are going to be non-deductible in the year spent. So there was a lot of confusion on when do I actually uh, recognize that income? Is it going to be in the year that I spend the money or is it in the year that it's forgiven? And the IRS has said, um, if you have a reasonable expectation of forgiveness, then it's going to be in the year that the funds are spent. So a couple of examples that I want to run through really quickly. You spend the money in 2020, you file the forgiveness application in 2020, but you don't get forgiveness until 2021. You still do not get the deduction in 2020. Um, in if you spent the money in 2020, but you filed the forgiveness application in 2021, uh, you actually no deduction in 2020. So I think I might have a little typo here. Bottom, uh, bottom line is when this, when the PPP loan first came out, this was, I think uh, of all of the provisions that were intended to help businesses through this period, this was the biggest one. It was a big cash infusion into small businesses based on their needs, based on their payroll and rent. The very, I remember one of the very first things I read was not only are we going to forgive this money, but the cancellation of the debt is not taxable income, no COD income. That's right. a basic tax principle is the cancellation of indebtedness. If there aren't some, some exceptions, cancellation of indebtedness is taxable income. So at first the reaction was, oh, this is in, this is money that will come in and it's not going to create a tax problem. But we've since learned that although the law itself said the COD income is not taxable, the IRS has made their interpretation and frankly, I think proper interpretation of the deductibility of expenses they've made their interpretation that you can't deduct expenses that you don't actually spend. So if the money that's being spent is from this quote unquote grant from the PPP loans, then you don't get that deduction, which just is a, it kind of deflates you because the original uh, concept felt like there was gonna be no tax impact of the PPP loan, but in the end there really is. And I think that you're right, Steve, this is what people need to take away. If you received a PPP loan, you need to be expecting a tax hit from this and you need to be prepared for that. And uh, if you if you're, haven't thought that through, if you're unsure about it, please give us a call. We're, we'll happy to, uh, we'd be happy to talk that through, help you project what that might look like so you can set that money aside for, for taxes that are gonna be due next year. Yeah. Uh, just kind of let you know that the AICPA, so the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and, and other parties are trying to lobby right now to make that change. I haven't seen that as a part of this new stimulus bill that um, that is that Paul, you're going to talk about later. So I, I don't have a whole lot of hope that that's going to be um, that the expense will be allowed, but they are lobbying for that. I agree. I don't, I, I don't expect that change, but you never know. Yeah. Um, 
Other things about the PPP loan, if you have a loan of less than $50,000, it's very simple. There, uh, there's a simplified form that you submit. And also you're exempt from uh, reductions in the forgiveness, either for full-time equivalents or if you had to uh, reduce employee wages. Um, if you file the full form, uh, you know, there, as you know, there's probably some reduction in the amount that can be forgiven if you reduce employees' wages or they don't go full-time. Uh, the forgiveness application due date, uh, it actually can be filed uh, anywhere before the loan matures, which can be two or five years, but the loan payment deferrals are only for the first 10 months that you receive the loan. So that was actually some confusion. I got a client that asked me the other day, you know, when do I have to file my uh, forgiveness application? Just a quick note on uh, PPP forgiveness applications. Um, where I'm starting to see clients who are completing these now, and there, it seems to be a two-step process. The bank gives their for forgiveness, and then they send it on to the SBA, and then the SBA communicates forgiveness. It does seem to be going pretty quickly from what I've seen. Um, if you can do the simplified method, if you qualify for that, it's nice and easy. If you don't qualify for that, it's very complicated. Um, there are a couple of tools out there that you can use. The AICPA has a PPP forgiveness uh, tool that's on a website where they kind of step you through answering a few questions. And then at the end, it, it produces the forgiveness application. And I think I saw ADP and, and uh, has that same kind of thing on uh, on their uh, on their platform as well. So if you need help with that, give us a call. Uh, California does conform to the PPP loan forgiveness uh, for tax years beginning on January first, twenty twenty. I'm not going to go into this example, but if you have a fiscal year filer. Um, that is going to create a little bit of, of complication because of the way that California treats that. So take a look at that example there. It may be for California that you recognize expense one year and then you recognize the income the following year if you're a fiscal year. So if you have a year ending other than December 31st of 2019 or 2020. And Paul, you could probably speak to this as well, but there are a lot of other California opportunities. I was uh, reminded that uh, you know there's California has these main street main street small business tax credits where you can get a thousand dollars for each qualified employee if you uh, have an increase of employees um, if assuming you had a decrease there's also uh, covid 19 grants uh, that the governor announced about a week ago that's going to start in January and then um, the governor also mentioned, you know, for small businesses that have a million dollars or less in sales, that there is a deferral, three month deferral on paying the sales tax in. Yeah, I think that the, the takeaway here is um, when you are looking for information on stimulus uh, uh, relief or COVID relief, look to your local uh, uh, municipalities. I know here in the state of Tustin, they're doing a great job of um, sending information out to us on all the programs that are available. And there is a lot of money out there available. And we'll talk about this later, but there's going to be a lot more money that's coming from the federal government down to the state and local governments for them to administer and distribute. So if you're a small business that has suffered um, 
it's really worthwhile to talk to your state, I'm sorry, your city um, department, you know, business department, and we can help kind of put you, point you in the right direction on some of those things too. All right, so that transition, what other relief is coming? All right, so I'll kind of talk through this. Um, this is updated through this morning, and frankly, this is happening right now, so who knows, this may be passing right now, but the second uh, stimulus relief bill from the federal government, I'm sure you've heard about it, is in process, and I thought we'd just kind of talk about that a little bit. So up until it seems like about a few weeks ago, there didn't seem to be a lot of hope, and suddenly there was some real bipartisan support for uh, a second stimulus bill. So it sounds like this is going to happen by the end of the week. It's interesting to note that this is part of a overall spending bill that uh, has a deadline of this Friday. Uh, so, you know, without this passing, without this overall spending bill passing by this Friday, the government will shut down. There's a couple of current sticking points in the, in the current bill. The Democrats are objecting to um, COVID liability protection for businesses, while the Republicans are objecting to the amount of uh, state and local government funding. Um, and so in an effort to rescue the bill, there's currently a proposal out there to split those more contentious points off into a separate bill so that they can still pass hopefully easily uh, the remainder of the stimulus. And as Steve advances the slide here, I just wanna remind y'all as you're on here, please feel free to uh, any specific questions you have, enter them into the Q&A box and we'll try and answer those as we go or we'll follow up with you. So I said that uh, the, the bill is split into two parts. The first one is a $748 billion package. Um, these things are mostly investments into the economy. They're not really tax rules, but I think they're worth um, knowing about. Uh, so the, the first, first and foremost is, is there going to be another stimulus check? Uh, the original bill didn't have one, then the Trump administration pushed for a $600 check and others were, tr were calling for a $1,200 check. As of this morning, I don't know if you saw the headlines or not, but it sounds like it does seem likely that they're going to put a stimulus check of $600 into this bill. I think they were going to reduce some of the state and local funding by the amount of the stimulus check that they're going to be sending out directly to taxpayers. So we still don't know how that'll be administered and how that'll go out. I would assume that it'll be in the same way it was done previously. But that's the bottom line is it does sound like um, that as of right now, uh, there would be another, another stimulus check the amount of $600. This relief bill also extends that extra unemployment payment uh, that Steve talked about earlier. So the, the CARES Act put into place, I believe, an extra $600 a week of unemployment. It was extended at an amount of $300 a week. This relief bill would extend it for another 16 weeks after it expires in, on December 31st. 
The relief bill would also extend the PPP program by adding another 300 billion to the program. Um, unfortunately, we don't have real solid details on what that would look like. I have heard, and I think this is something to note, I have heard that um, that uh, people who have already received PPP funds will have may have the opportunity to apply for a second PPP uh, loan. Um, don't have any details about that, but the one thing we do know is that they're going to be targeting businesses that were especially hit hard, like restaurants and live venues and things like that. So that will be really interesting to see what comes out of this bill as it relates to the PPP program. This bill also provides about $25 billion to state and local governments to provide aid to individuals for rent and utilities. And it extends the evic eviction moratorium through January 31st of 2021. So I believe it was through the CARES Act, there was a, a moratorium on evicting people who were behind on rent. This extends that moratorium on evictions and it also distributes federal funds to state and local uh, governments to provide direct assistance to people who are behind on rent. And there's funding for vaccine development and, uh, and distribution as well. And then the second bill, so I talked about originally that this relief is, is looks like it's gonna be split into two, two bills. The second bill would be the much smaller one that contains the more uh, contentious items. Uh, it would include 160 billion of, uh, of add-on state and local funding. Again, that would hopefully trickle down to our clients directly through uh, grants and programs that, uh, that they can uh, contact their, their state and, uh, and city uh, officials about. And then short-term COVID-19 related liability shields for employers. So we talked about that a little bit before. It seems like this would be helpful, I'll say. Uh, you know, this is such a contagious thing and uh, it's the focus of everybody's attention. You would assume that litigation would just be running wild. And so this would provide uh, liability shields for employers if their employees get COVID through their workplace, unless there is some egregious um, negligence on behalf of the employers. So moving on, uh, wanted to talk about uh, 2020 uh, tax planning strategies. Yeah, so uh, we have about seven or eight tax planning strategies. Many of these here are you know, strategies that you would want to uh, apply year in and year out. Uh, there are some definite changes and things that you're going to want to uh, look at specifically for uh, 2020. Um, the first one I just want to mention was, you know, know your bracket. And I think it's, it's crucial to kind of get an idea of where do you fit within your tax bracket? Is it something that, hey, you, you, you're, you're just on the cusp of jumping up into the next bracket, which could be, you know, seven or eight percent increase. And so by knowing that, ahead of time before we you know file your taxes we can do something about it maybe we need to uh, you know try to work to increase some tax deductions uh, 
you know, you need to ask yourself the question, should I increase my income? Maybe my, I've got some losses that I can use. Uh, should I sell property with a loss to offset uh, income that I made on a different property? Kind of knowing where your tax bracket is really helps make tax planning easier and, and you can uh, helps yourself out when it comes to filing your tax return. And not only is, um, is it smart to, uh, to, to understand your tax bracket as it relates to when you recognize income and how much tax you're going to pay on that income, but also when you take deductions, if you've got, if you have a desire to make a large charitable contribution at some point, uh, doing that when you're at a high tax bracket, you get a little bit more bang for the buck on your contribution. So, you know, you can uh, use a donor advised fund to accelerate, you know, multiple years worth of contributions into one year, uh, if, if that would be helpful. Yeah, well, good segue, Paul. We're going to talk about those charitable contributions right now. So, uh, you know, 2020 is an interesting year. Uh, as a part of the CARES Act, if you make cash contributions, you can actually offset up to 100% of your adjusted gross income. That's an increase of 40% over last year where they allowed you to offset 60% of your adjusted gross income. In 2020, you can actually offset 100%. So if you do have um, some appreciated property, you know this is a way that you'd be able to offset and, and eliminate virtually all your taxes if you wanna make cash contributions. So I keep saying cash contributions because, and it's gotta go to a 501c3 charity. Uh, you cannot use this 100% uh, AGI if you send the money to a donor advised fund, then you're subject to the old limitations. But if you make that direct contribution uh, to the charity, you can offset 100%. So this is a really big uh, planning opportunity and some of my clients are actually taking advantage of this um, this year. Another thing would be to make non-cash contributions. This is something um, that we've always suggested is, you know, clean out those closets here at the end of the year, uh, take those items to goodwill um, and get a tax deduction for up to the fair market value of the donation, assuming that the property is in good condition. Uh, we're always suggesting people to use the app. It's called It's Deductible, uh, a great way to document uh, what you donated, that's always the other thing that we hear. Oh, I don't have a receipt. I don't know what it was that I donated. If you use the It's Deductible app, it's it's surprising because they actually provide you with a fair market value as you enter in the description uh, of what the value of that item would be using a thrift store valued system. Um, and if you were ever get audited, if you were to produce this report that lists each item in detail, I think you'd have no problem uh, documenting that particular deduction. So non-cash contributions, I think that's a great way uh, to be able to offset some taxable income. There is a new as a uh, $300 above the line deduction that's available this year. So if you don't itemize your deductions, uh, you can actually make a charitable donation and get a $300 uh, deduction, uh, which is above the line which is allowed for 2020. And then finally, it's always a great idea to donate appreciated assets. I have a, a, an example here. So rather than you selling the property and then donating that money to charity, if you were to actually 
donate the, the uh, property or your securities directly to the charity. Um, you don't uh, recognize the capital gains on that, the reduction. So the impact can be greater if donating that money directly to charity. Uh, you can see the example that I have here on this slide where actually uh, it provides another $10,000 in value by not selling the property first, then donating the, donating the money to charity. So think about that. If you've got some appreciated assets uh, that you don't want to recognize the capital gain and you still plan to donate to charity, just donate it directly. Many of the charitable organizations, they know how to handle the, these types of transactions and they can help you through it. Retirement plans. This, this is the one of the other big ways that we can help clients uh, reduce their taxable income. And so we're always recommending uh, making donations to retirement plans, maximizing the amount of the contributions that they can make. Um, you know, for an, an individual employee, we're always telling them, you know, at least contribute up to the matching limit. This is, you know, this is free money for you to be able to put into your retirement plan and you get a tax deduction for whatever you contribute. Um, if you are an employer, I would really consider uh, starting a profit sharing plan or maybe even considering a defined benefit plan. I have clients that um, have put, will have contributed, you know, $150,000 into a profit sharing plan and 115 of that or 120 of that goes directly into their plan. So not only are they getting $150,000 deduction on their corporate return, they're also able to put in $120,000 into their retirement plan and provide a nice incentive for their employees. Um, so it keeps the employees happy. They like seeing their retirement plans funded. If you want to get even more aggressive, there's defined benefit plans that you can contribute several hundred thousand dollars um, into that and receive a tax deduction. And finally, you know, a health savings account, if you're eligible, if you have a high deductible health insurance plan, uh, you can make a contribution to an HSA plan, they call it, and get a tax deduction on your individual return. HSA plans are interesting. I've seen a few clients who have made those contributions year in, year out. And you don't, just because you're putting money into an, a, a tax deductible contribution into an HSA account, doesn't mean you have to use that money. Uh, so I've got some clients who have accumulated pretty large balances in an HSA account. And it almost acts like a long-term care insurance. Obviously it's not insurance, it's a savings account, but it's something that um, will be available to them 20 years down the line. Yeah, there was always like kind of two strategies related to the HSA, right? Either one, uh, you know, you, you put the money in, uh, you make the contribution, you get the deduction, and then you pull it right back out. When I had an HSA, I don't think the money ever sat more than like yeah. 24 hours in there. And then, there, and then you know, there's those that, yeah, use it as a, a funding. And I think that that's, that's what it's intended for, right? Because it grows tax-free uh, when you pull the money out. Uh, investments. You know, I would, I really would recommend you talk to your investment advisors or, or let's have a phone call with, with, uh, you know, you as a taxpayer, us as the CPAs and your investment advisors, uh, let's get together on the same page. You know, are there any surprises that are there? Maybe look to harvest any losses, knowing that there, there are some gains that are to be had. 
um, you know, we're always kind of reaching out to your advisors. Hey, what are the dividends? What are the interests look like? Uh, are there significant capital gains that we need to react to uh, and discuss and plan for here at the end of the year? Yeah, I think it's important that your investment advisors be mindful of taxes as they advise you on investments. Um, there are certain mutual funds and things like that that are designed strictly to not throw off, you know, continued capital gains each year and things like that. And it's important to be considering your current specific tax situation in, in your investments. All right, deferring income. This is always, uh, you know, a great strategy. First of all, uh, many of you are cash basis taxpayers, uh, either your business's cash basis or you as an individual are a cash basis. And so what that means is that uh, we'd recommend, you know, pay down your expenses. If you've got um, some accounts payable that you're, you're trying to decide whether to pay it or not, I would say, you know, write that check um, because you get the deduction when you actually pay those expenses. Uh, so, so pay down accounts payable and then look to maybe try to forego income uh, until 2021 because obviously your income isn't recognized if you're a cash basis until you actually receive it. Uh, my caution there is that if you do have constructive receipt, if the IRS considers the fact that, hey, you really got that, received that money, you just put it in a drawer and, and made that deposit in 2021. If you receive the money or have access to those funds, that's considered constructive receipt and the IRS would say that, you know, that is income in the year received. So, um, but that doesn't mean that you have to be aggressive in trying to collect here at the end of the year. So look to try to bunch your deductions um, if you need to itemize this year, um, pay down expenses, uh, maybe not press to receive income in 2020 and, and try to defer that until 2021. Purchasing equipment, um, you know, there still is a lot of uh, ways to directly expense equipment that's been purchased either through the 100% bonus depreciation uh, you know, buying a, a piece of equipment, you get an immediate tax deduction as opposed to a deduction uh, over a five-year life, potentially depending on, on what type of asset it is. There's also Section 179 limits. Uh, over a million dollars uh, of equipment, if you purchase it, can be immediately expensed. Um, not to date ourselves, but, you know, back way back when we started, that Section 179 was $25,000. I think California still has it at $25,000. So I guess kind of knowing that there are Fed and state differences, uh, but huge expensing opportunities. Um, if you need to go out and buy large pieces of equipment, you'll get the immediate tax deduction in 2020. The key is to make sure that equipment is placed in service. So if you go and buy a new piece of uh, machinery. If it's not, you know, on the floor and ready to go by the end of 2020, it's not considered placed in service and that deduction, unfortunately, will be deferred until next year. Qualified business income deduction. For many of you that um, have flow through entities, you know, you get a 20% tax deduction on the income that flows through to you. Uh, lots of planning opportunities here. Um, that is phased out if you are considered a specified service trade or business, an SSTB. Um, 
and I believe that that your income is over $415,000 that's phased out to you if you are an SSTB. Um, if your income is above $415,000 and you're not an SSTB, there's still some, some limits uh, based upon your wages or uh, business property. And so you really want to do some uh, planning, especially if you're a, an S corporation and you're just the only employee, you probably want to do some planning to make sure that you have take enough wages to be able to maximize that QBI deduction, because this is a huge thing. I mean, when you're talking about $500,000 of income, if you could get a tax deduction for $100,000, that would have a huge impact on your, your income taxes. Yep. We've got C-Corp bonuses. So if you are a shareholder of a C-Corporation, you know, typically this is the time of year that you want to try to lower uh, the corporate income tax and you can take a bonus out of that. You really want to try to avoid that double taxation. And what I mean by that is, you know, any profits that are left in the C-Corporation, they're going to be taxed at the C-Corp level. Uh, and then if they pay you a dividend, that's going to be taxed as a dividend on, on your individual return. Uh, you may consider try to bonus that out, lower that C-Corp income, and then you're just paying uh, the taxes on the individual level. Any profits left in the C-Corporation are taxed at 21%. Yeah, so the, in this area and the QBI area, both, both of those things, the, the one you just talked about, I mean, there's a mathematical equilibrium point that you can find as to what's the optimal amount to do. So with the C-Corp, you know, leaving some profit in can make sense. You know, the corporate tax rate at 21%. And then if the distribution is a, is a, um, a qualified dividend at 15%, that's a combined 36%. So uh, it may or may not be best to take a a bonus and there's probably a real uh an, an optimal point that you need to find so these are areas that are it's complicated but you can can find the the, the optimal amount to do uh, consider some roth conversions you know especially this year if your income is down um, or your ira values are down this is a chance to roll over uh, your regular IRA into a Roth that is going to be taxable income to you. But as you probably know that um, money in a Roth account, it grows tax-free when you take the money out later upon retirement. So here's a chance if you've got a big uh, regular IRA, roll that money over into a Roth, recognize the taxable income while your, uh, your income may be lower or while the IRA value is less and you expect it to bounce back. This is interesting to look back yeah. at the, when we had this call at April 15th. Yeah. So this, this was a, I thought a huge opportunity for people was the stock. If you remember back then the stock market had just tanked Yeah. and it was like, Hey, might as well, you know, consider if it works for you, converting your IRA to a Roth while the value is low, lock in, lock in that tax at a low Roth at a low value. And then if it rebounds from there, it'll escape tax. And I think that that was also the reason that the CARES Act allowed you to 
postpone your RMDs. That way you could leave your money invested in your 401k and you sure. didn't have to pull it out while the values were, were down. Right. And now as we look back, the market came back so quickly <laughs> yeah. and this opportunity isn't there anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to look back from what we were thinking and where we were in April, on April 15th when we had this discussion last time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, withholding and tax uh, withholding and estimate planning. I mean, our goal when we do year end tax planning is to make sure that uh, you're avoiding estimated tax penalties and just to kind of review. I mean, we want you to hold the money and not the government. And so we typically will try to, you know, minimize the amount of estimated taxes that you have to pay throughout the year. I mean, that doesn't mean that you avoid taxes, but if you hold on to that money, you're earning that money, hopefully in the market or some other uh, place, and you have to pay it over in April. But, you know, it, it could mean that you're holding on to that money for uh, another uh, 15 months, as opposed to the government earning interest on your money. Um, there's the requirements. You have to avoid estimated tax penalty. You have to pay in 110% of 2019 taxes or 90% of 2020. And that's really what we're doing kind of this month, which is evaluating with our clients. Have we paid in enough estimates? Did we meet some of these safe harbors uh, or do we need to, to pay some money in uh, before the end of the year? Just wanted to mention, I think this is the uh, last slide that I have related to tax strategies. There are some expiring tax provisions. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if Congress uh, renews these, but the 7.5% AGI floor for medical expenses. Um, in order to receive a medical deduction, you actually have to have uh, spend medical expenses above 7.5% of your adjusted gross income to get any benefit. That moves back to 10%. That was 10% a few years ago. That was dropped to 7.5%. If it's not renewed, it'll jump back up. Um, there is an exclusion for gross income if, for a discharge of indebtedness on your principal residence. So. Um, you know, if you had a discharge on that person on that principal resident, you can exclude that from income. Uh, if you meet certain requirements, that would go away. That would then be considered COD income. Uh, you have to recognize that on your tax return. There's a tuition deduction. Um, there's tuition credits. There is also a tuition deduction. The deduction would be eliminated. I believe the credits would still continue on. And then finally, uh, if you pay mortgage insurance. Uh, currently, that qualifies as residential interest. If you meet certain requirements, again, uh, that would go away as well. So we'll look to see if these expiring provisions are uh, reinstated uh, in the next few weeks. All right, and then moving on, I think their final section related to, you know, what what would happen, uh, what will happen with a change of uh, leadership. Yeah. So. You know, we thought it'd be good to talk about the Biden tax plan. I, 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 I wanted to mention, you know, we didn't talk in the tax planning section here about making moves in anticipation of changes under a Biden administration. I think that it's, it, in my personal opinion, it would be very unlikely that we would see any changes beginning January 1st, 2021, as a result of a change in tax philosophy of a new administration. Um, number one, we have to wait and see what happens in that Georgia 
runoff. If the Republicans retain control of the Senate, it seems very unlikely that we would see any change until that change in control happens. And number two, even if there is a change in control of the Senate, uh, the likelihood that that would that there would be major tax rate changes, some of the some of the things that we're going to go over, um, it would seem unlikely that would happen uh, retroactively, effective to January first of 2021. So, um, you know, no need to, in our opinion, we always want to be conscious of what's happening, but no need to make radical moves in anticipation of a big change coming in 2021. So Biden's ex, uh, expressed as part of his campaign that his plan is to not raise taxes on households who are earning less than 400,000 a year, but uh, he would raise taxes sharply on the wealthy and on corporations. And you'll see this $400,000 threshold throughout some of these provisions. So uh, there's a lot of detail here. So I'm, I'm gonna kind of whip through this on the next slide. So. Some of the specific things in his proposal or in his uh, um, kind of what he put out as part of his uh, campaign as it relates to individual income tax. First is he would raise the top tax bracket from 37% back up to the pre-Trump era 39.6% top tax bracket for federal income taxes. This is an interesting one. He would... Um, uh, there would be a social security tax basically on wages over 400,000. So currently social security tax is levied on wages up to 137,700. This would have that amount restart again at 400,000, creating what has been dubbed a donut hole. And uh, I, if there's one thing that we love, it's a funny acronym or name for things like TICJA. And if this happens and we have the donut hole, uh, believe me, we will use that one all the time. <laughs> we can. Did you ever figure out why that 39.6, like how that came about? I know we, we've chatted about that before. I do not know the history yeah. of that, huh? The next thing would be um, to tax long-term capital gains and qualified dividends at the ordinary tax rate. Uh, for taxpayers that have income over a million dollars instead of the advantaged uh, 15% or 20% that you that there is right now. Uh, it would cap the benefit of itemized deductions to 20% value for those earning over 400,000. So what that means is if your tax bracket goes higher than the 28% tax bracket, you're still going to only get the benefit of your itemized deductions up to that 28% tax bracket. That one would be an interesting thing one, uh, an interesting one for us to calculate and deal with. The next thing he had laid out was restoring back the 3% of AGI phase out for itemized deductions, again, for taxpayers over 400,000. That was something that was in place up until I think the, the TICJA um, Tax Cut and Jobs Act that was put into place, uh, it was nice and simple without this. Uh, so it'd uh, be interesting to see if that comes back. The next is that he would phase out the QBI, the Qualified Business Income Deduction for taxpayers with income over 400,000. 
Steve just talked about this in tax planning. Currently, it phases out uh, if it's a specified trade or business, so basically service providers. Uh, but this would phase it out for all taxpayers. Uh, they would expand um, earned income tax credit for certain taxpayers, expand renewable energy credits for individuals, uh, increase the child care tax credit up to 8,000 from 3,000. So this is a credit for people who have to pay for child care in order to work full time. It would increase the child tax credit up to $3,600. So this is the credit that all taxpayers under a certain threshold get. And that is currently $2,000, I believe. Yeah, right. I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, his proposal would reestablish the first-time home buyer credit up to fifteen thousand. It would expand the Affordable Care Act premium tax credit. So, um, just as a refresher on that, when you, if you apply for health insurance on the market, uh, you fill out what your income is, and based on that, part of your premium is paid for, and then at the end of the year, your based on your tax return, you either get an additional credit or you have to repay some of that credit. This would expand on that program. And then this one is the interesting one. And it, this isn't a specific thing, it's more of a concept. He would create a refundable renter's tax credit on individual tax returns, federal tax returns, um, based on a full, on, on a dollar amount that would fully fund that program and the aim would be to hold rent and utility payments for taxpayers at 30% of monthly income. So somehow they would calculate, I assume, based on where you live, what your average, what average rent and utilities would be, and then you would be entitled to a credit so that it keeps that number at about 30% of your gross income. That would be an interesting one. <laughs> And then uh, uh, some of uh, Biden's proposals as it relates to a state gift tax um, uh, would be, one would be the elimination of the step up and basis on inherited assets. This is an interesting one. Um, right now, uh, if you inherit assets from a decedent, your tax basis is the fair market value on the date you inherit it. I think based on the concept that it those assets have already been subject to tax through the inherit the estate tax uh, by eliminating the step up and basis that would certainly leave the opportunity for more tax in the future it would be a record-keeping nightmare if you've got assets real estate that's been passed on you know from generation to generation being able to research and figure out what your tax basis is would be very difficult I mean, I had a client that inherited like UPS stock that split, you know, since like 1940. Can you imagine yeah. like trying to determine like, okay, what's the basis of this? Yeah, it'd be difficult. I think maybe four or five years ago, brokers, brokerages were required to start tracking and reporting basis. From that point forward, I could see it. But yeah, uh, yeah like you said, stock that you've owned for 40 years would be tough. And then it would, uh, from an estate and gift tax standpoint, it would raise the tax rate back up to the 45% number, and it would reduce the lifetime 
gift or estate tax exemption back down to the 2009 level of three and a half million dollars from its current 11.58 million uh, million dollars. This is an area that a lot of people have been taking action on, um, and as uh, as we start to learn more, maybe something for taxpayers with a high net worth to take advantage of to get the to get assets out of your estate while you can at these higher amounts. And then moving on, lastly, what the Biden tax plan calls for for businesses. And again, this is this is what he put forth in his um, campaign. Uh, certainly expect that to change as, as uh, he takes office. Um, it would increase the corporate tax rate up to 28% from the current 21% uh, flat rate uh, it would interestingly um, levy a 15% minimum tax on corporations with book profits of $100 million or higher. Um, so that is, you know, corporations that, and I assume that would be all entities, that have large deductions so that there's a big difference between their corporate book income and their taxable income. There would still be a minimum tax you'd have to pay got to wrap things up here pretty quickly, I realize. Um, it would double the guilty tax. So this is this is the global uh, intangible low tax income tax uh, that is, was, was designed to encourage corporations to bring back to the US income that they've earned in foreign countries and are keeping in foreign countries. So we had a huge influx of money coming back from you know big companies like Apple and uh, companies like that. This would double that tax rate from 10.5% up to 21%. There would be a 10% surtax on corporations that offshore certain jobs. And then conversely, a 10% made in America tax credit that businesses would be entitled to for restoring US manufacturing jobs. Uh, tax credit for adopting workplace retirement savings plans, expanding uh, credits for renewable energy, and then finally, eliminating real estate industry provisions. So I, I believe presumably this is bonus depreciation on certain real estate improvements, as well as the carried interest rules that allow uh, individuals who uh, kind of take sweat equity in real estate deals um, they currently can recognize gain when that property is sold as capital gain, just like uh, any other capital gain. And this would, would change it to be ordinary income and compensation. So that's an overview of what we know about uh, the Biden uh, tax plan. So we are out of time, we realize. Um, just as a quick reminder, we are re recording this and uh, we'll put it out as a video on YouTube as well as just the audio of it. We'll put it out as part of our podcast. We've been, Steve and I have been just kind of having conversations about the news and things, interesting things we're noting from time to time on Zoom as we've been mostly sitting at our, in our home offices just to stay in touch. And we've been recording those and putting them up as a podcast as well. So. Hopefully you all will find those resources helpful and um, as well as our uh, subscribe, subscribing to our newsletter.
we are happy to answer any questions you have. Hopefully there's one or two points in this information that you think might be useful. Please give us a call. We're happy to discuss those things one-on-one -on -one and, and, um, and uh, help you out with those. Any other comments, Steve? No, I think we covered it. So we're, as we're heading to the end of the year, please reach out. If you have any questions on anything, we would love to be able to assist you um, either now or after the end of the year. Yep, happy to help. Hope you all are doing well, staying healthy. We wish you Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and I uh, look forward to a great new year. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, take care.